into the fifth and final day of the Darwin Festival at Cambridge, celebrating all that is evolutionary in the 150th year since Origin of the Species was published. I'm Diana O'Carroll from The Naked Scientists, and today we saw talks on our ability to adapt to the changing climate across both short and long terms. Just how long will it take to fix our planet? Sir Brian Hoskins. First, we're already committed to the climate change over the next 20 years, 2030 or so. And so what we do now will affect the latter part of this century. And in fact, it's more than that. What we do in this next 50 years or so will actually influence the planet for the next 1,000 years or more. And the present calculations suggest that if we let the CO2 in the atmosphere rise up to a certain level and then come to our senses and say, oh, no more emissions. After a 1,000 years, you'll still have 40% of that extra CO2 in the atmosphere. The temperature will still be within half a degree of the maximum, and the sea level will be rising for another 3,000 years. So there's a commitment. We're already committed to some. What we're doing now says what commitment are we leaving for the next 100 years, for the next 1,000 years? It's an amazing responsibility we've got. Professor Sir Brian Hoskins from Imperial College London and what we can expect from climate change. But for now, can we expect to meet targets on lowering fuel emissions? Duke of Eldhouse spoke to Sir Brian Heap. Well, here you come up against the question of more developed countries against less developed countries. And of course there is a, a sharp issue here, a very sharp issue, which is going to have a, a great effect in Copenhagen in December. My own view is that in Copenhagen, I suspect we may see deep failure. And I think the failure will derive from the fact that we are not going to meet the targets for mitigation. We are not going to be able to reduce emissions sufficiently. Therefore, we have to fall back on the next aspect, which is adaptation. Adaptation, I think, is going to be the crucial issue because we're going to have to learn to how to adapt to these new environments and all that that will bring with it. And we're going to have to need to help to a much greater extent less developed countries that are going to be affected even more than we are because of the extent of global poverty. Are we going to have time to adapt? No, I don't think we are. I think, I think this is a crucial issue. Brian Hoskins has already drawn attention to the fact of what we do in the next 20 years determines whether we're going to have any prospect of having an impact over the next 1,000 years. I'm, I think I'm a little more pessimistic than that because I think there is a really serious problem here about drawing people's attention to the importance of adaptation and the changes in lifestyle that would be necessary for all of us. And I'm a consumer just as much as you are. Professor Sir Brian Heap on our ability to adapt to climate change, speaking to Duke of Eldhouse. But another method by which organisms can cope with the changing environment, along with adaptation, is cooperation. Lord Robert May. We start with the problem that here we are celebrating Darwin. Darwin had certain problems in his own time, like without understanding nuclear fusion, you couldn't understand how the sun had been around long enough. But the great remaining unsolved problem in evolutionary biology is how cooperative behaviour among big associations of unrelated people can arise and persist. We don't really understand the evolutionary origins of our own, the glue that binds us in cooperative societies. It is a huge problem and we show dismayingly little sign 
of coming together to recognise it, to act in equitable proportions on behalf of a seemingly distant future. Professor Lord Robert May of Oxford University. Also speaking today was Lord Martin Rees on how Darwin's work links to his own as an astronomer. Lord Rees explained the crossover to Duke of Veldhaus. Well, I think it's remarkable that Darwin is a scientist who's... Uh, cultural legacy is still more alive than that of any other scientist because his uh, ideas permeate general culture to a greater way. And I would say that uh, my own subject of astronomy and cosmology is also part of common culture because the public is fascinated by origins, be it the origin of consciousness, the origin of life, or the origin of atoms or the origin of the universe. And so it's all linked together. Darwin's simple beginning in the famous closing words of The Origin of Species was the young earth already a very complicated combination of minerals, etc. As astronomers, we're trying to set that in a broader context to understand where the planets came from, where the atoms they're made of came from. So I think we're all engaged in the same quest to understand the grand story of origins of everything. The time scale for you is, of course, slightly different because you had a very nice slide showing that we see a culmination in, in evolution and we think of the human species as having been around for a while, but putting that into context, it's minute. Well, the Earth has lived for about a third of the age of the universe, but of course human life is a very short phase and uh, civilization is about one millionth of the uh, time the Earth's been around. But one point which I think astronomers can emphasise is that the universe and even the sun has a long time ahead of it. And so I think we should really speculate seriously about post-human evolution because there is billions of years ahead for human life here on Earth and far beyond to develop. And moreover, the evolution now is controlled by human beings and is happening on a far shorter time scale than traditional natural selection by Darwinian evolution. So things are going to happen very fast and there's a huge amount of time in which they can happen. So the future is even more exciting than the past. Lord May, coming back to that, he's just mentioned post-human evolution. That's always a slightly unnerving thought. But if we don't succeed in cooperation, I suppose that's uh, certainly where we're heading. Is there any feasibility with the increasing population that's happening to our planet at the moment that cooperation will be forced upon humans? Is that likely to happen, do you think? Well, I'm reluctant to make predictions about things like that because I've got a collection of quotes of silly predictions people have made. But I don't believe we will ever wipe ourselves out. But I think the real question is... As we proceed, depending on how we act, what sort of a planet we're going to leave for the people that come later, whether it's going to be something like some of the more uh, imaginative science fiction movies, as I said last night, uh, optimistically maybe like Blade Runner, pessimistically maybe like Mad Max. And I think more generally, building on what Martin said, one of the really interesting questions that people like Martin open for us as we discover more and more planets seemingly suitable for life, I, for one, believe evolution is the thing that will occur on all of them. But the interesting question is, is the kind of runaway to catastrophe that we're facing if we don't act a natural stage in any evolutionary process, or is it some pathology confined to our particular history? So are earthbound civilizations fated to rise and fall. Lords Robert May and Martin Rees speaking to Duke of Veldhaus. 
We can see evidence of civilization boom and bust in archaeology, and species bloom and fade in the fossil record. As Chris Stringer explains, the fossil record we have now would have been something of a luxury to Darwin. Well, I suppose you can say that even the idea of evolution and of a deep time for Earth history, even that was controversial, and of course for some people today it's still controversial. But I think for humans, yes, it was a big challenge, certainly, as we've said, the lack of physical evidence in terms of fossil evidence. But on the other hand, there was a huge amount of comparative data already building up in his time. So there was all the anatomical data, the behavioural data. I think what was interesting for The Descent of Man is that although Darwin, of course, had been establishing natural selection as the main mechanism of change in evolution. Interestingly, in 1871, with the Descent of Man, he ends up arguing that actually natural selection can't explain some of our human features, some of our so-called regional racial differences, for example. He argued it was difficult to find an evolutionary explanation for those, and he thought sexual selection was actually more important in the production of the differences we find between living populations uh, in the form of the hair, the eyes, the nose, the lips and so on. So interestingly, he moves away from natural selection for those processes and, and looks at sexual selection or what we now say as cultural or social selection. And I think he was probably right about that, that um, indeed most of our features can be explained by natural selection and this might include skin colour. But I think that human cultural preferences, different ideas of beauty, for example, have steered the course of human evolution recently, increasingly so. So I think in the last 50,000 years, the development of these regional differences have come about uh, through four different processes. Natural selection, certainly for some, drift because populations get isolated and go down their own road almost by chance, founder effect, small numbers of people moving out of Africa and founding new populations, and maybe they're not necessarily typical of their parent group, and then sexual or cultural selection. And I think the last one is important in the, in the recent part of the story. Chris Stringer from the Natural History Museum on how natural selection doesn't act alone in humans. Darwin started off as a creationist, and it was only through his search for explanations of his finds that he came to such a famous conclusion. David Fisher spoke to Frank Soloway. Well, there's no question now that the conversion to evolution was after the Beagle voyage, and for a good reason. There was no way for Darwin in the field to have the kind of sophisticated understanding of his Beagle collections that he had once he got back to England and had access to really top-notch taxonomists, systematists, to tell him the full meaning of what he had brought back. One of the amazing things is Darwin immediately realized this meant evolution had to be true, and yet the experts who knew more than he did in these subfields, did not see far as far as Darwin did. And, of course, it was Darwin's writings which really gave the idea the push and had people talking, accepting the idea and thinking about it more widely. Well, Darwin completely changed the ballgame about evolution. After all, Robert Chambers wrote The Vestiges of Creation in 1845, and although he had a great readership, it was a bestseller for its day, he really didn't convince that many people. What Darwin did was to change people's thinking, and that's because of the argument not only for evolution, which was very, very sophisticated. It was really an argument showing the theory of design just was wrong. So evolution, some form of evolution, had to be true. But Darwin also had the theory of natural selection, which provided the alternative to intelligent design, namely how adaptation can come about by a natural process. That was Professor Frank Soloway from the University of Berkeley in California, speaking to the ABC's David Fisher. And finally, 
It may be the end of the talking part of the Darwin Festival, but the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge will be running their exhibition Endless Forms until the 4th of October. I asked James Secord what was involved in setting up the exhibition. I think in many ways the whole festival grew out of a desire among a number of people in the museums to collaborate and work together. And I think it's been extremely interesting the way in which the various museums have illustrated different parts of Darwin. The Fitzwilliam exhibition in many ways, Endless Forms, is I think uh, the most exciting of these exhibitions, partly because it's very experimental. It's a real attempt to try to see, explore different ways of thinking about the relationship between science and the fine arts. And I've been a lot of science and fine art exhibitions, and I think that that exhibition really is much more successful in exploring both the tensions and the relations between science and art in, in different forms. What are those tensions? Well, I think for one thing, there's a kind of way in which science is trying to see things very closely, very accurately, in a way that can be repeated by other people, at least ideally. Whereas art, particularly during the course of the 19th century, increasingly became oriented around ideas of individual creativity and the calling up of particularly emotional feelings and so forth. Now, those two things are intention. At some level, they seem completely separate. But in fact, if you look closely, of course, if you read The Origin of Species even, you can see that those things are bound together very, they're entangled, to use a Darwinian word, very closely. So it's very interesting to see, to walk around the exhibit and see one moment, you know, you're looking at a painting that clearly is shaped by huge enthusiasm for discovery of the age of the earth. And then the next painting, you know, you have this kind of bowed down sense that, you know, the world is collapsing around you and we're all just going to die. I mean, it's a, you know, there's this kind of sense that we're just kind of part of this huge stream of life. And in the end, it doesn't really mean that much. You can see that also, I think, in aspects of the science. And they've put specimens in the exhibition. There's fossil bones and teeth and all sorts of things in their shells. And at the same time, the, the vision of the art. And so you can bring together these things and see the kind of way in which the, the really manifold impact that Darwin's ideas had. James Secord, Professor of History of Science at the University of Cambridge. That's it for the week, but a huge thank you goes to Duke of Veldhouse, Joanne Littlefair, and all the team at the Darwin Festival this week who kept things organised and provided us with biscuits. Production this week has been by David Fisher, Laura Sol, Ben Valsler and Chris Smith. I'm Diana O'Carroll from The Naked Scientists. 